you have your Bibles with you, take them out. Join with me in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in, in front of you uh, that, you can, that you can use. That's yours. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. We're going to be camped out in these eight verses for a couple of weeks. Uh, one of the reasons for this is I don't want to preach the end of chapter 2. You'll understand that when you read ahead here in a second. Uh, but I want to focus on the main point of this passage, but there's also some sub-points that I want to spend some time on, and that will be what we spend most of our time on this morning, is some of the sub-points, and next week we're going to focus on uh, the, the main point, the best that we can. But First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1-8, through 8, let's read it together if you follow along with me, and we'll dive in. It says, first of all then, I urge that supplications... Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So we need to remember in reading this that Paul here is encouraging Timothy to stand up to false teachers that have come within the church. This this conversation is what continues to happen. And the thing on the table is the gospel. The gospel and its saving power, actually. That it is the, the gospel that saves, not nothing else. There's nothing that needs to be added. Nothing can be taken away from the gospel message. That it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is what saves us. And so as we look at this passage today, this is still the driving point. This still is the focus of of Paul and what he's trying to get through to the church that he is writing to as he's writing to their pastor uh, Timothy here. And so what we'll see today is we are called then as believers, and what I want our focus to be this morning, is to be praying for the souls of the lost, to be praying for those who do not understand the hope that is found in Jesus. And when he says this, he means all the lost. That really is the focus. If you look in verse 1 of what we read, Paul says, first of all here, and he's, he's getting ready to lay out for the church, and he's, again, he's talking to the church, the gathered church together, uh, things for them to do, things for them to focus on, things for them to notice. And so he's writing this letter again saying, first of all, and I want you to think this way. Pastor Spence and I were talking about this. If you are to write a letter... To the church today, it could be this one, it could be any of them, it don't matter. But if you're going to write a letter to the church today and you say, first of all, what would you then write? Let's think about that. I'm writing you today, church, and first of all, I want you, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what it is you would say to them. Because it's an important thing to think about. I receive these letters all the time in the mail. First of all, and then they'll say, this is what the church should do. 
I received a letter today. It's anonymous. I guess it's not anonymous. It has a first name, a very common name. It was like eight pages, and it says, Pastor, feel free to use this in your church. It'll, it'll help your church. And to be honest, I scanned it a little and threw it away. I, I didn't really read much of it because it was anonymous. It was, wasn't even from around here. It was postmarked somewhere far away. They have no idea our church or anything about it. But this gentleman had an idea of what the church needed. Not necessarily ours specifically, but again, the church just in, in general. Or I'll, see, I'll receive letters from companies with nice packets and say, you know what, if you would just hand these pens out at the door, a lot of people will come to your church. These pens are fantastic. They write very smooth, and you can get them for 15 cents a piece if you buy 1,000. You write all this. It'll really help. Or I get letters from technology uh, companies that work with churches that say, if you would just buy LCD screens for your uh, backdrop there, the, church, the people in your community will know that you care about them, and they will now come. I mean, this is true letters that I get. And so what is it to you for first of all church, this should be done? What is it that you would say? Now, I'm guessing if you're like me, you probably know the answers of what you should say first. But oftentimes in our heart, we feel something very different. You know, if the church would just look more modern, we know that's not the answer, but that is how we feel. You know, if the church would just be more proactive in the community. Again, we know that's probably not the first answer that Scripture would give, but it is how we, how we feel. And so I want you to dig down in your heart a little bit and ask that question. I'm going to write to the church, first of all, what do I want them to say? Because Paul starts here with something I would guess many of us would not start with. And it's not just prayer, it's public prayer. It's public prayer of the gathered church together. Now, we have had a couple times of public prayer this morning already. And if I was to test you and say what was said in these prayers, for most of you, you would not be able to answer the question, including myself. Because if I'm being quite honest, when Pastor Scott is praying, I'm often looking at my sermon, trying to get the last-minute cram job in. When Pastor Spencer is praying, I'm off. Uh, thinking about the Super Bowl, it's next week. I'm thinking about the chili cook-off. I just fade. I just, I just tend to, to fade. And so I'm not ridiculing you, if that is you. I'm just pointing out that a lot of times, during public prayer and services, we're not too focused. It's not something of great importance to us. Yet, when Paul writes this letter to this church that is struggling with false teaching, that is, is struggling and they're, they're straying away from the gospel a little bit, he says, first of all, I want you to understand this. Public prayer is important. That's the first place he goes. And he says, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving to be made for all people. Now, I don't think too much time should be spent on the differences in these words. I've read many sermons this week, saw some different commentaries where they try to go on and explain all the differences of these words when the fact is there's not much difference at all in any of them. It's just like when scripture says, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sometimes people will try to take those three words and say, these are all different. When in fact, those who know the language don't know what those three words mean. They, they really just say, it probably just means psalms in all of them. Well, here it means prayer. All of these are just kind of focusing on prayer, probably referring to the same type of thing. And what Paul is trying to stress here 
is the importance of prayer for the lost. That's why he basically says it four times. You need to be praying for these people. And this is an important issue for Paul because he's been arguing again about the gospel and its sufficient work in salvation. And sometimes I think the way Paul functions is he knows the pushback that he's going to start to get from people. There's some pushback usually as you take a stand like this. And in his mind, the pushback could be, because this is a pushback I've heard when you talk about the sufficiency of the gospel alone as well, is people will push back and say, well, then that means I don't need to do anything. God will do it all. There's nothing for me to do. And what I mean by that is people will say, then if it's about grace, if God is the one who saves, then there's really no need to do missions. There's no need to pray for people. We just let go and let God, as some people would say. Just let go and let God. If he's sovereign, it's all just kind of going to happen and fall in place. And I think Paul is fighting that and, and pushing back against people who would think that way. He does this as well in Romans chapter 6, if you remember. Because in Romans chapter 6, he's talking about grace. And he asks this question in verses 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace can abound? So that grace will look better. Should we just sin so that as God pours his great on us, grace on us, people will be like, wow, look at how much grace there is. Right? He goes, no, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I think it's kind of that same type of understanding here with prayer and praying for the lost. Paul wants it to be very clear that yes, we are, we are saved by grace, but yet we are called to be active within our own faith, within the faith that God has saved us in, right? And so we have to be active, and there are things in that we are called to do. What I mean by this, I don't, I don't want to get too much in the weeds of it, but God is kind enough. He's kind enough to us that, yes, he saves us and he does that work, but then he allows us to be a part of the kingdom, not just as a spectator, not just as somebody who sits aside and it's like, you know, okay, now get out of my way and let me keep going, but as somebody who has the privilege to be able to be active within the kingdom of God. And part of this activity, as Paul's pointing out here, is prayer. God didn't have to do it this way. He, in his great plan, he didn't have to let us be a part at all in anything. But he did. And that shows us his kindness. That, that shows us the love that he has for us. And Paul's pointing out here that God uses our prayers. Now, I wish I could explain this perfectly. I wish I could stand up here uh, this morning and say, well, this is how God's sovereignty and your prayers intersect and align so perfectly. I, I, can't, I can't do that. To be honest, I think it's kind of a mystery of how all of that stuff works out. God's very clear in his word. He tells us it is the gospel that does the work, but I need you to pray. Pray for the lost. That's what he's getting to here, which we'll talk more about in a moment. But how God uses all this in the midst of his sovereignty, it's proof of his perfection. It's proof of his grace in our life. Again, that he allows us even to have the privilege to pray and to communicate to him. We'll see also in the next point how God uses his sovereignty, those in civil authority. Because that's what he goes to in verse 2. After saying supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. In verse 2 he goes on to say specifically for kings. And all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, I believe there's two important things going on here as Paul is asking this church to pray for those in authority, kings and people in high position. You'll notice first that Paul says there is a personal benefit 
to having good civil authority and civil authority that does the right thing, doesn't he? He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so there is this aspect personally where we are called to pray for those in authority over us civilly. So mayors, presidents, senators, all these people who, uh, judges, these people who make rules and make laws, who execute those rules and those laws, that we are called to pray for them. Why? So that we can live peacefully and we can live a quiet life. And I, I think what Paul's getting at here is when, when we have leaders in civil authority who, number one, love God, or at, even at the least, respect those who do love God. Maybe they don't themselves, but they, they respect maybe the morality that is taught there. Whatever it might be, we see in those instances how the gospel can flourish. How as the church, it can flourish when there's, when there's freedom to be able to, to share the gospel without fear that the civil authorities are going to come down. Right? When we're able to gather together and worship together with peace, it brings a peace to our life that we're able to do that. And Paul's encouraging this church to, to pray for that. Now, this is something that I would say all of us in here have experienced our whole lives. And I think it's something that we actually take for granted. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking this morning, well, isn't it possible, possible for the gospel to flourish even in harsh environments? Uh, the answer to that is yes. We see evidence of that in countries today that are very harsh to Christianity, yet we know that there is a culture within their country of Christians. But it would be foolish for us, would it not? Wouldn't it be foolish for us this morning to end service by praying, God, would you just make our leaders be like China so that we could just feel the harshness of how they hate us because then your gospel would just flourish here? No, we wouldn't want to pray that. God, just give us a dictator who will outlaw all of Christianity because that is when the gospel just works. No, we wouldn't pray that. Paul's saying pray for your civil leaders, that God will use them so that you can live a peaceful life as a Christian, a, a godly life, a, a respectful life, a respectable life, which, again, most of us have had the privilege to have all of our lives. Yet, secondly, there's more to this, though, I think. There's more to it. There's another reason I think Paul talks about to pray specific, because he already said for all people, right? He, he says that in verse 1, be made for all people, but then specifically the kings and those in high positions. I think the reason for this is those are the people oftentimes, especially in a persecuted country, like the Ephesians were facing. They were facing persecution. They were facing struggles with their civil authority. Those would be the last people the church would want to see salvation come to. Forget those people. Those people are mean to us. Those people hate us. And you know what? They will get what's coming. That could easily be the attitude within the walls of the church. And so I think Paul specifically points this group out to really enhance the made for all people section of verse 1. To be praying for everybody. I would say all of us have people in our life that we find it very easy to hate them. We find it very easy to dislike them. We find it very difficult to get along with them in any situation. And maybe you've been kind before and you've tried to get along with them 
and it proved to just be unfruitful. And maybe you tried again, and it just proved to be unfruitful again. And maybe there are people in your life who seem to just be so difficult that you really don't want to have anything to do with them. And the thought of them joining us here at this church, no. I mean, that's what crosses your mind. I don't want them here. This is a place where I come to kind of relax and have some peace. And if they're going to be here, it's just going to be draining. It's just going to be dreadful. And we all have this in our life of people that maybe sometimes when we look at them and we Christianize ourselves, we say, oh God, would you save them? But deep down we think, but I don't really want to be in heaven with him. Right? I think for this church it would have been the civil authority. And Paul's saying, these kings... These leaders that are over you that, listen, you don't like because some of them have killed some of your family. They've executed them because of their faith. You've witnessed it. You've seen it. You need to pray for all people. And by that I mean the kings and those in high positions, those in civil authority, those who rule over you. Pray that God will open their eyes to the truth and and save them. And Paul backs this up. By speaking in verses 3 and 4, what does he say? He says, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He says, this is a, this is a good thing to do. And why is it a good thing to do? Because in verse 4, it shows you have the same heart as God. Which, what's his heart in verse 4? Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? We see the love of God in this. And so that is why we're called to, to pray for them. Oh, you might not have a desire for all to be saved, but God does. And you as a child of God need to be praying the things of God. And so pray for all the lost. Pray that God would open their eyes to the truth, that they would come to a knowledge of salvation that can only be found in him. And that's kind of where we close this morning in verses 3 and 4, to where it's pleasing to God for his people to pray for the loss. In verse 3 and 4, we really see the love of God in it. We really see the heart of God, of how it pleases him when the church prays for the lost, when it, how it pleases him because God desires this, desires for men to be saved. And this then is our motivation in public prayer. Now again, there's different parts of, of prayer where we intercede on behalf of people. Yes, we see it in the Lord's Prayer where we, it's okay for us to pray for our needs, give us this day our daily bread, right? We're supposed to be praying for these things, but how much of your prayer life really is taken up for the lost? Uh, I know that's kind of convicting for me. I can spend most of my time praying for me. My needs, I can spend a lot of time praying for you and your needs, as I know about them. People who are sick, people who are facing struggles, whatever it might be. But I'm being quite frank, it's harder for me to spend time praying for the lost. And it shows something about my heart. It shows something, I think, about my desire. It shows something about my motivation and my goals in life. Because what pleases God is that his church would be praying for those who are lost. And again, remember, this is public prayer. This is the gathered church together spending time to pray for those outside of the walls 
who without Christ will die and go to hell. And Paul here is addressing life within the church. And I want to get that in your head because as we move forward in the next couple chapters, Paul will continue to deal with life inside the church. And so as we sit here this morning, as we, as we gather together, we must be faithful to pray for those who do not know Jesus. And this, again, isn't limited to certain types of people. It's not limited to certain races or uh, those who are in a cert- find themselves in certain places uh, financially. What should be on our heart and the longing for us as a church family is that there are people dying and going to hell. And what God desires is God desires for all men to be saved. I know that can be difficult for us because a lot of things seem very far off. They seem very distant. It's probably easier for you, which is, and this is a good thing to do, to pray for your family members who are lost. And you should do that. It's probably easy for you to pray for your co-workers who are lost because you see them every day. You talk to them maybe more than you talk to your family. And so it's easy for you to picture their face. And as you're praying to God, you're picturing them and you're saying, God, would you, would you let him see you? Would you let him know that he is lost? Would you, would you save him by your grace? But it gets difficult, doesn't it, when we don't have a face? We don't have a personal connection. But that doesn't push aside our call to be praying for them. And so there's people in the Middle East, there's people in Africa and in Australia and up in, into Canada, down into Brazil and Argentina. There's people on islands all over this world who are, who are lost, who you and I will never meet, we'll never, we'll never know. But yet it's our duty as a church to be praying for them. That God would send somebody to tell them the truth. That, that God would help them to see the, the truth of the gospel. That God would, would save them and do a work in their life. And this is a good work. right? This is a good thing that we are called to do. It says that, look at verse 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Some of you would ask questions. You know, what could I do around the church? What, what more could I do? And I would dare say if I said, you know what you could do? Just spend time every day praying for the lost in our community. Just spend some time praying that God would, would open their eyes to the truth so that they won't die and go to hell lost without him. I would guess after that conversation you would think, that's kind of boring. I was expecting something else. I was expecting something more. But really in saying that, what would be given to you is the first task that Paul gives to this church. First and foremost, pray for the lost. See, as Christians, I hear so often in our little realm, in our little community of which, to be honest with you, sometimes I feel completely trapped in. Do you ever feel like that? You're just trapped with Christians all the time? Maybe not. I do uh, at times. And we like to complain about the world. We love it. We love to point our finger at the world and show the morality has went down, right? To show how claiming to be wise, they've become fools. We love that verse. We love to point all these things out, which is fine, I guess. 
But how often are we actually praying about these things? And praying about these things in a way that Paul has taught us to pray so far. Because you remember how he ended chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1 he said, hey, those two men, you need, to, you need to get them out. As Pastor Spencer would like to say, you need to excommunicate them. I actually read what scripture said and said, hand them over to Satan. But he's ridiculed me of that some for some reason. But they, he, he's pretty strong words. But remember what was Paul's purpose in that? What did he say? That they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's whole motivation behind that was that God would use that in their life so that they would turn back to Christ. How often in your nagging, in your complaining, in your little Christian circle, is the purpose of the nagging and complaining that those people would see their errors actually scripturally and come to know Christ? I know when I get caught up in that stuff, it's not usually so that they'll come to know Christ. So that I could look smart or right, often. And we need to make sure that's not our motivation. We need to have the heart of God that all people would come to know him. Have a desire that all men would be saved. See, I always always struggle with some funerals because a lot of funerals that I do, I have no idea. I have no idea if the person's a Christian. And usually I do have some good indicator because most funerals have pictures And when you look at the pictures, just based off the pictures, a lot of times I can say, probably not a Christian. Just based off the pictures. Just talking with the family a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, I have no idea what happened in that person's life. The thing that I can honestly tell a family in that situation is, we serve a just God. And those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what it says. And if I'm looking at the pictures, now I would never say this to a family, but maybe you might think it too, but as I look at the pictures, I might say, as I look at these pictures, Joe here does not deserve heaven. If you want me to be honest, as I'm looking at his life's work, I'm looking how your family's pretty broken, I'm looking that he's had 14 divorces, I'm looking he seems to be kind of a scummy guy, if I had to tell you the truth, Joe does not deserve heaven, and he's probably getting what he deserves right now. But that's bad motivation, isn't it? What my hope and what my desire needs to be is that however Joe's life ended, I don't know how it ended, but maybe, just maybe, God in his grace opened his eyes to the truth at the last moment. Oh, he lived a life that to me doesn't deserve it. But God desires all men to be saved. And so I hope beyond hope that God in the last minute, in the last hour, Open Joe's eyes to the truth so that one day when I get to heaven, there's Joe. And I can't get up to heaven, can I, and be like, well, what a rip. I was saved when I was seven. I had to follow every rule all the time. You know how many sermons I had to listen to? You know how many boring church services I had to be in? And if that wasn't enough, God, you called me to be a pastor. You know how many members I had to talk to and listen to them all the time and act like I cared? What is happening? Joe here lived his life. Joe here seemed to have fun at every turn. But by the book, Joe shouldn't be here. And you're telling me Joe is here? I think sometimes that's our heart. I really do. I think sometimes that's what we think, and that's how we act. And we start to think that we deserve this gospel. I don't deserve God's grace. 
I don't deserve it for a second. And to begin to think that because of my resume, God saved me. And because of their resume, you know what, let's just forget about them. That does not please God. What pleases God, according to this passage, is that I would fall on my face before him, that we would as a church, and to pray for those who are lost. To pray for those that we see wasting their life, chasing the things of this world, trying to find hope in places there is no hope. You can't find hope there. Hope can only be found in Jesus. And we should be praying for them, just like the heart of God, saying, God, save them. God, save them from the destruction that is their life. Save them from eternity away from you, facing your wrath. When Pastor Spencer and I were, were talking about this passage, he posed a good question. We were sitting in my office. Because, and we'll get more in the weeds of this passage next week, I'm sure. And some of us want to get into this passage probably and we want to get into the weeds. But he asked me a question that I was, I was glad he asked. He said, he said, Tim, what, when you're preaching this passage, what do you want an eight-year-old to know from this passage? Right, when you, when you read this section here, what would, you, what would you teach in children's church? What would, you, what would you say to them is the big thing to take away? And for me, it was pretty simple. It wasn't something I had to sit there and think about for a long time. To read this passage to somebody who's lost or to read this to a child and to go away from it, I would say, look at how much God loves. Look at this. He loves so much that he wants, to, he wants us to keep praying that more and more people would understand his love. That's what God is asking us to do here. He's not just saying, yeah, this little group, just, just keep it. No, he's saying, I love so much. Pray that more will understand the love that I have for them. Pray that it will continue to expand. Pray that it will continue to be known. God, God loves us so much, is what I would share with these children in children's church. That look what it says in verse 5 and 6, he loves us so much that he would send Jesus into this world to give himself as a ransom for all, to die for all. And so I would tell those kids in children's church, I would say, you know, you know the little boy that keeps bullying you at school? You should pray that God would save him, that he would know that God loves him. It's the same type of thing I'm saying to you now. You know that boss is just so mean to you at work. You know it. He has it out for you. And maybe it's because you're a Christian. You should pray for him. Pray that he would experience the love of God in his life. That he would see it. That he would understand for the first time how much God loves him in the midst of his own sin and destruction. It's a simple truth. But it's a truth nonetheless. Jesus came to die for sinners, Paul would say. And we live amongst many of them who do not understand that. So then this then is why we pray. We do it, one, because God delights in it. And we as a church family need to care enough about God 
to be faithful in the things that he delights in. That was really the main thrust of the worship series that we did. I talked to a lot of you about the worship series. Is the way we worship should be delightful to God, not to me. Right? Not necessarily to what I would delight in, but what does the Bible say God delights in when it comes to worship? Well, this is kind of the point again with prayer. God, how do I pray? I know how I want to pray, how I want to communicate with you, but what do you say I should do? And he says, I, I, I need you to pray for all the lost. Well, all the lost? Even those? Even those. Pray for them. Pray that their eyes will be open to the truth. Pray that they will understand who Jesus is and trust in him with their heart. I hope that's a hallmark of us as a church family. That we would be praying for those outside of these walls. Praying that God would help them to see their lostness. And that we would have a heart and a compassion for them. To pray for them and on top of that to share with them. Listen, where you are headed there is no hope. I can tell you where there is hope. It's found in Jesus and him alone. This is the great work that God allows us to be a part of. And this is the great work that we need to continue to be a part of. You know, although we live in the country that has great freedom of religion, great freedom to worship, I never have any fear when I come to church on Sunday. It never, it never crosses my mind that when I get here, there might be a police officer here saying, you can't do this today. That's never crossed my mind. I don't know if I've ever even thought about it until this very moment standing here right now. We have this great freedom here. And amongst this great freedom, you know, we still come across every day people lost. You don't have to go with the team to Israel to find people lost. You don't have to go with Dr. Chapman to Guatemala or to Central America somewhere or South America somewhere. You don't have to go to those places to find people who are lost. For most of us, you probably just need to knock on the door that's right next to yours. Because they're probably lost. You just need to go to a school function. There's a lot of people there who are lost. Go to one of the fish fries that are coming up pretty soon. I'm pretty pumped about it, to be honest with you. There's a lot of lost people there. And as we look at those people, do we have a heart like God has? To say, God... I desire for all these people to be saved. Would, would you open their eyes to that truth? Would you help them to see who Jesus truly is? Let us as a church be faithful to be praying for those who are lost and to understand that God continues to work in the hearts and in the lives of people. God is still in the business of saving lost souls. He still does it every day, all over this world. He helps them to see who he is. And by grace, through faith, people are continually added to the church. Because God continues to be faithful. And he asks us, faithfully pray for those who are lost. So hopefully we will be faithful in doing that. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the word of God. And for some of us, it could simply be as we sing or hear as I pray in a moment, your response needs to be praying for people who are lost. 
you need to seek repentance, forgiveness maybe of being unfaithful in that. But then you need to do that. For some of you this morning, I hope that maybe you see that this passage is talking about you. God desires for you to be saved. Maybe you've never trusted in him. I hope this morning that you will. That you'll see the love of the Savior, that he would give his life as a ransom for all. That you would trust in him. We'll have an opportunity to talk more about that next week as well. God, I thank you for how good you are to us. I thank you that you save us, that you've done all that work, that we don't have to do that work. And God, I thank you that you allow us to work in the kingdom. God, I don't want to be one who just sits on the side. I don't want to be the, the player on the team who's happy to never get in the game. I, I don't, it's just not how I am. God, that's not the church. That's not what you've established. God, you, you save us. You bring us into your kingdom. You allow us to be a part of a local church family. And you allow us to be active. And a big part of that, God, is prayer. You allow us to pray for our fellow church members. But as we see here in this passage that we've looked at this morning, you allow us to pray for those who are lost and dying, who have no hope, who do not understand peace. They do not understand what love really is. So God, I pray that as a church family, we would be prayerful for the lost. God, that first and foremost, that you would save them. God, we want to be a church that's faithful to pray for those you've called us to, even the, the kings and the authorities, those in high positions. God, we don't have a king, but we definitely have people in high positions over us. And God, we pray for them. We pray that in your sovereignty that you would use them for good. We pray that the church would continue to be able to have freedom to share the gospel with people, freedom to come and to worship as we've been called to worship. We, we thank you, God, that in this country, at least, we've had the privilege of being able to live a quiet and peaceful life for many years. And God, we pray that that would continue, but that it's not something we'd take for granted, that we actually then would live a faithful life to you. If you really have done for us what you say you have in your word, if you've came to us and you saved us in our sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If that's true, and if you've, if you've ransomed me, if you've bought me back from the slavery of sin, and you've seated me now in the high place, you've given me an inheritance that I am secure because of the Holy Spirit. If all this is true, then God help me to faithfully live the life you've called me to. Help me to lovingly honor you each and every day. Help me to never fall astray to that. God, this morning in this room, I, I hope and pray that there are people praying right now for family members who are lost, for co-workers who are lost, for even people all around the world. God, as we have missionaries in all different places and they're there sharing the gospel, we pray for the people they're coming in contact with. And God, we pray that you would do a work in people's lives and save their souls, the work that only you can do. God, as we close this service out now, help us to worship you through this song. Help us to continue to respond to your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.